Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day that Jesus enters triumphantly into the holy city of Jerusalem. And he enters into this holy city of Jerusalem and he fulfills over a thousand years of prophetic anticipation and kind of this one culminating moment. It's an exciting day on the surface, but if you go a little bit deeper, the day may be a little bit more sobering than exciting. You see, what was triumphant for the crowds um, was tragic for Jesus. Um, And so to understand what I mean by that, um, before we get into Mark, I actually want to get into Luke. So I'm going to do something a little unorthodox. If you've been here the last uh, couple of weeks, we've been on a a sermon series in Mark, and we will land in Mark today, but we're going to actually start this morning's message off in Luke so that we can get a greater perspective why on one level this was triumphant, but on another level this was tragic. So if you have your Bibles, I guess I did tell you to go to Mark 11, but I'm going to open up and start with Luke chapter 19, and we're going to read verses 41 and 42. 41 and 42. We'll have it up for you on the screens as well. Uh, Luke chapter 19, uh, 41 through 42. And scripture reads like this, and when he drew near... This is Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I'm going to read that again. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This is Jesus weeping over the city, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar uh, with Palm Sunday, or for those of you who maybe are familiar with Palm Sunday, this verse is really interesting. It's really intriguing because moments earlier... The city was rumbling with sounds of praise and triumph. Yet here Jesus was in tears, visibly heartbroken. So what did Jesus know that the crowds didn't? Well, I'm going to share with you two things. Why was Jesus in tears? Well, number one, he knew that Jerusalem would ultimately reject him. He knew that the shouts of praise on Sunday would ultimately become shouts of crucify him on Friday. And so he was in tears, heartbroken, because even though the moment was triumphant, the reality of it was tragic. But just in case you think Jesus is a man with rejection issues, I want you to know it was even deeper than that. It wasn't that he would be rejected that broke his heart. Even deeper than that, it was what the results of that rejection would bring upon his people. Jesus knew what the tragic results of that rejection would bring. You see, he sees the fate of Jerusalem. 
by rejecting the king and by rejecting his kingdom, they were rejecting those things which God had provided to them for their peace. And so Jesus is weeping over the city, visibly heartbroken, even though they have just began to praise him because he realized that the crowd is fickle and that the praises on Sunday will turn into the crucifixion, them yelling crucify on Friday, and ultimately will turn into the rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And that rejection will actually bring upon them things that will destroy them, not things that will bring them the peace that they so desperately need. And again, the tragedy was not in the rejection. The tragedy was in the results of that rejection. So I want to pause there and kind of jump out of the story because I believe you and I, we we must learn from this. We must learn from their rejection so that we don't make the same mistakes that they were making. And let me explain. They missed salvation not because it didn't come, but because when it did come, it did not come the way they wanted it to come. You with me? They missed salvation not because it didn't come, but because it did come, but it didn't come in the way that they wanted. How many of us have prayed for things only to look back and realize the things that we prayed for didn't come the way we expected it to, but they still came? Like, that's not the package. That's not the way, uh, Lord, I'm praying that you would fix something. I'm praying that you would change some things in, uh, in my family, in my life. And, and all of a sudden, when it does come, you almost don't want it anymore because the fix becomes too difficult for you to bear. Like, I didn't mean for it to come in that way. And so it's not that salvation didn't come. It's just that salvation didn't come in a way that they, they wanted it to come. Now, I think this is really important for us. And this is probably one of the most difficult things about Christianity. You ready for this? Here it is. If Jesus is going to be Lord of your life and king of your heart, he's going to have to reign on his terms, not yours. Amen? You see, some of us want a Jesus. We want Jesus. Amen. We want him. We want him. We, we know his beauty. We understand his goodness. We want Jesus, but we want him our way, according to our schedule. Uh, we, we want him uh, as long as he fits in our box. And, and so we want him to be Lord, but we want him to be Lord on our terms, which doesn't make him Lord at all. And what really begins to happen is as the mirror begins to reveal things in your life, you just realize, I'm not sure I want Jesus. I just kind of want the fringe benefits of Jesus. And that saying is, like, if he is not Lord over everything, then he's not Lord at all. And so if I could be honest with you today, that's not a king. That's a puppet. And if we are going to receive Christ at in his rightful place in our hearts, we're going to have to receive him as king and not a puppet. And those are strong words to begin a sermon on, but I want you to understand that as we go through the triumphal entry, this seems to be more tragic than it is triumphant. Amen? 
So let's pray, and then we're going to get into Mark chapter 11. Father, I recognize that the gospel is glorious. The gospel is beautiful. And to those who are being saved, the gospel is precious. But I also recognize that the gospel can be offensive. I also recognize that truth can hurt it can sting. And so I understand that the, the enemy of our souls is in this room looking to pick apart the word. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak and that we would understand the things that are for our peace so that we wouldn't reject this king. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. Y'all ready? I've decided to title this message, The Tragic Entry and not the triumphal entry. Mark chapter 11, and we'll have it for you here on the screens, verse 1 through 10, reads like this. Now when they drew near Jerusalem, the Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, if it's been your tradition to attend church on Palm Sunday, then I'm sure you're familiar with this story. But maybe if you haven't, let me catch you up to speed. You see, thousands gathered to see Jesus that day. You see, Jesus was the famed prophet from Galilee who had healed the sick, casted out demons, and raised the dead. And on that day, this famed prophet was now going to enter into the holy city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem began to rumble with expectation because this man who had healed the sick, this man who had multiplied bread, this man who had raised the dead was now entering into the holy city during a holy celebration of Passover. And what you have to understand about Passover is that Jews who had left or had been dispersed over the years and the centuries all returned back to Jerusalem so that in this moment, the city of Jerusalem was filled with over a million people. This is not just a little event. 
Now, Mark writes quickly, but if you would read the other Gospels, you will see that there's not only a large rumbling crowd waiting for Jesus in the city, but there's also crowds that are already following him because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And so crowds are coming behind this man and crowds are waiting for him. And what we see is a culmination of this moment. The city is rumbling with expectation. And as electrifying as this moment is, or as electrifying as it was, there's still a problem. You see, everyone there that day had their own expectations of the Messiah and had their own versions on how he should save them and save Israel. Have you ever met somebody who had an expectation on you that you didn't have for yourself? Everyone in this rumbling moment had an expectation on what the Messiah should look like and how he should save them in Israel. So who was around that day? Let's just pause to observe some of the characters that were in the crowds during that time. Well, again, if you've been with us, you know that wherever Jesus grows, goes, there's always crowds. And we've seen Mark talk that the crowds are always around. Jesus can't seem to leave the crowds. So let me tell you a little bit about the crowds. These were multitudes of people who kept following Jesus as long as he kept feeding them and healing them. Listen, they were more concerned about what he could do for them than who he actually was. As far as they were concerned, a king who could multiply bread and heal the sick was exactly what Israel needed. Can you imagine if somebody began to run their presidential campaign on a political platform that said, I can multiply bread and I can heal the sick. Uh, Forget free universal health care. Goodbye, Obamacare. We now have Jesus care. And Jesus care is I'll just touch you and pray over you and everyone will be healed. Now, that wasn't a political statement, guys, so don't get upset at me if you're a fan of Obama. What I'm saying is this was a man who was much more than a man who was healing on command, who was multiplying bread and raising the dead. I mean, if there was somebody running for president who could do all those things, we'd instantly cure hunger in our country. We'd instantly cure sickness and disease in our country. And so for the crowds, a king who could multiply bread and heal the sick was exactly what Israel needed. Secondly, We also know that there were religious leaders always hanging around Jesus. Now, different than the crowds, these men wanted nothing to do with Jesus because his very existence threatened their religious control, power, and manipulation. Do you know that religion can be very manipulating? Do you know that there are supposedly men and women of God who will use this to manipulate you? And so Jesus, when he came on the scene, he actually threatened all of those who would use the scriptures for their purposes and not the Lord's. Now hear me out. These men were always close by Jesus, but these men were not there to worship him. They were to catch him slipping. They were there to trip him up. Now this next group, Mark doesn't tell, much, tell us much about them, but they were there around Jerusalem during this time. 
This next group is called the Zealots. Now, who were the Zealots? Well, these men were modern-day insurgents determined to violently overthrow the Roman occupying force. They were basically terrorists looking for a militant Messiah to go to war with Rome. You have to understand that Israel is dominated by Rome during this time. And so as a result, the zealots were insurgents. They were, they were Israelites who wanted to violently cast the Romans out. In fact, you can kind of look and see at our history today and even what's going on today. You could kind of in some way uh, compare Rome maybe, and this is a weak analogy. And again, if you're a nationalist in this room or you're all about America, please, this is a weak analogy. But you could kind of compare it to the Americans occupying another country and holding it down until, in our, until they raise up a government that can take over. Are you with me? Yeah. Now, Rome wasn't trying to raise up a government to take over, but in that same way, Rome is occupying another nation. So you see Roman soldiers everywhere you go, keeping the peace. And so what the zealots were, were Israelites who hated the fact that Romans were occupying their nation. So they're doing whatever they could to terrorize them and ultimately move them out. Are you with me? Finally, number four, of course, there was his disciples. Amen? His disciples, the good old band of merry men. And as we've been seeing the past several weeks, the disciples genuinely loved Jesus, but routinely preferred their version of greatness over Jesus' mission to die. Every time Jesus is like, hey, look, I've come to die. Like, no, 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 that's not, we're not going to do that. And so even though they loved Jesus genuinely, they were constantly preferring their version of greatness over his version of death. And I mean, do you blame him? Anybody in here? Do you blame them for having that kind of thought process? So here's what I want you to see. With all of these misplaced expectations buzzing in the crowds, it's easy to see why this moment was triumphant for them, but tragic for Jesus. Are you with me? So we can see it more clearly. Um, I, want to, I want us to look at what the crowds were saying and what the crowds were doing. And then I want us to look at how Jesus entered the city and where he went once he entered. So we can get a reality of this dualistic expectation, this, these two competing concepts, Jesus and why he really came and the crowds and why they want him to be there. And so what I want to do is take a look at this. What were the crowds saying? If you remember reading in Mark, the Bible tells us that they yelled, Hosanna. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's a Hebrew word that means to save now. To save now. And although Jesus did come to save, right, he came to save them from their sin. He didn't come to save them from Rome. They wanted him to deliver them from Rome, but he wanted to deal with their sin. They also shouted, uh, they also shouted, the coming kingdom of our father David. And so not only did they yell, save us now, Jesus, but then they also said that you are the one that's going to bring in the coming kingdom of our father David. Now, let me tell you why this is a significant declaration it goes back over a thousand years to the reign of King David in the history of Israel. 
You see, Israel longed to return to what they saw as the golden years of their history. Let me explain. After King David died, Israel went through a long period of time of darkness in which they suffered through many civil wars, many evil kings, and invading foreign nations. As a result, Israel always lived in a hope that they would one day return back to their golden time. So it made sense that their future hope It made sense that their future ideal of what national hope would be would culminate and be expressed in the word David. Not only are they saying, save us now, but they're saying, you are the king who's going to bring us back to the golden age. Now that we know what they were saying, let's look at what they were doing. We're also told that many spread their cloaks on the road and spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Um, I believe it's Matthew or Luke, might be Luke, that tells us they were palm branches. But I want you to see uh, these actions had prophetic, messianic, deeply biblical implications. You see, what they were doing, it wasn't just random. They were actually looking back into the Old Testament, going back to the Hallel Psalm, Psalm 118. They were declaring Hosanna. They were laying down palm branches. You see, this was what they were doing was they were saying, Jesus You are the promised one. You are the Messiah. And what we're doing and what we're shouting is declaring that you are who the Old Testament said would bring to us. What a beautiful moment. All of the city rumbling together, triumphantly declaring, this is the one. This is the king. This is David. He's going to return us back to the golden era. And so we lay down the branches and we lay down our cloaks and we declare messianic expectations over him he is the one are you with me and so you might be asking me what Phil what's the problem <laughs> this is perfect this is what Jesus wants right doesn't he want people to acknowledge him as king doesn't he want people to acknowledge him as savior doesn't he want everyone to know he's the messiah well the only problem is what they were saying on the front end had messianic expectations tied to it, but deep down inside of their heart, there was also some other expectations twisted in their motivation that didn't make this as authentic as we think it is. Let me explain a little bit what that means. We can find this in their history. Missed expectations come out of their history. Let me explain to you. Throwing down the garments on the road recalled the time in history when a man by the name of Jehu delivered Israel from a wicked royal family. Now, again, you may know the story. As Jehu rode into Jerusalem to liberate Israel from Ahab and Jezebel, the people laid down their cloaks as his chariot went by because he was their champion going to deliver them from, a, from an evil royal king and queen. 
This had happened in their history. And so by laying down their cloaks before Jesus, they were declaring this is not only our king, but this is our champion coming to deliver us from those that hold us occupied. Not only that, but the palm branches recalled another time in their history when a family of brothers, and you might be familiar with this, named the Maccabees, momentarily overthrew Greek occupying forces. In fact, one of the brothers, Judas Maccabees, after they revolted and successfully kicked out and expelled the Greeks, he rode into the city of Jerusalem, and they began to lay palm branches down because in that moment, he was their Messiah. Are you with me? Now, here's what I want to get at here. What they said and what they did proved they knew what they were doing. In this moment, they truly believed Jesus was the promised one who would bring the kingdom of David. But here's the thing. When Jesus entered into the city, how he entered the city and where he went totally disappointed them. How he entered the city and where he went was totally unexpected. Again, how did Jesus enter? Well, while the crowds uh, fed up with Rome saw this moment as an uprising, they didn't notice that Jesus, and maybe they did, but they didn't think too deeply about this, but they didn't notice that when Jesus rode into, or in, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he rode in riding on a baby donkey. That's not very intimidating. Like if I want somebody who's going to come into the city and lead a great force to overthrow Rome, I don't want a general riding into the city on a baby donkey. <laughs> That's like, man, I want my general rolling in the city in a tank. Instead, he comes in in a Miata. And that maybe is not an accurate analogy, but my point is, you, they, they, they expected him to come on a chariot, on a, on a war horse, because he was their deliverer. If they only saw the donkey, Jesus didn't enter the holy city regally like kings had before him, but he entered lowly and humbly on one of the most lowly and humblest animals of all time. You don't ride a donkey into war, but you put burdens on top of a donkey, and the donkey carries the burdens. Are you with me? I mean, the donkey is not going to do very well in war, but he's going to do amazing at carrying your burdens, carrying your heaviness, carrying your workload. If only they would have seen what the Messiah had truly come for. Are you with me? He didn't drive on a chariot. <laughs> He didn't drive on a steed. I love saying that word, <laughs> steed. He didn't drive in on a war horse, but instead he came in on a donkey because Jesus was coming to bring peace. He wasn't coming to bring war. Now, I want to just kind of step out for a little bit of a side note. You guys are doing well. Thank you. A little bit of a side note regarding Mark. Uh, if you read, well, we just read this story in Mark, and Mark seems to put the most emphasis on this whole situation regarding the donkey. Like he, if you read this quick story, 
about 70% of it is about where the donkey is, how they're going to get the donkey, what Jesus said about the donkey, and then the donkey coming back, and then it's like, oh, he went in, and they yelled Hosanna. Like, Mark totally leaves out all of this amazing things that are going on that Luke captures and Matthew captures, but Mark focuses on this donkey. And he doesn't even, he focuses on just the circumstances surrounding the donkey. And so I, just, I would be remiss not to point out to you what Mark was trying to say or do. And can I just say one thing uh, from this story regarding the donkey? Uh, something that encourages me is that God is in control. God is in control. Let me explain. As followers of Christ, we need to learn to rest in his sovereignty. We need to stop being anxious. We need to be stop worrying. We need to stop forcing things to happen. We pray, but then we rest in his sovereignty. God is in control. You are not. While you sleep, he works. Thank you, God. Listen. God not only moves kings and kingdoms for his glory, but he places donkeys exactly where they need to be. I mean, didn't that feel like an insignificant, like, Mark, why are you focusing so much on the fact that Jesus says, hey, by the way, when you go down to the city, you're going to make a left, and you're going to see a donkey tied to a tight post. And then when you go there, you're going to take this donkey. Someone's going to say, hey, what are you doing? You still in? And then you're going to look at him and say, no, the master needs. It's like, why did Mark, it's like, Mark, why are you spending so much time on this? But I want you to know that we serve a God who not only moves kings and kingdoms, but he moves baby donkeys for his purposes. Some of you are clapping. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't get it. He's sovereign over everything. He's in control. All of history, from the big things to the small things, are all working its way so that he would get glory. And so he moves baby donkeys. He's in control. Amen. Number two, Jesus, he is our peace. Again, God, God is, he's in the minor details of our lives. Mark emphasizes that this donkey was unbroken. I don't know if you caught that. He may, he, it's not just a baby donkey, but it's a donkey that's never been ridden before. Now, can you imagine... Maybe if you were raised on a ranch or raised on a farm, you would understand this more. more. Us city slickers may not get this. But an unbroken baby donkey would be impossible to ride. Are you with me? Impossible to ride. In fact, in order for Jesus just to steer that thing in the right direction, now mama had to come beside it, but to be on top of this donkey and to steer that thing just in a peaceful direction, uh, he would have to have the most steadiest hands. Any doctors in the building? He would have to have the most steadiest of hands. There was no way that an unbridled, uh, uh, unbroken donkey would be able to make its way out. Now, here's what's even more amazing, ranchers and farmers. The donkey is literally walking through crowds of thousands, yelling and screaming, Hosanna, save us now, King David, who's come to restore the kingdom. There's no way that a donkey would be at peace who had never been ridden before and was a baby to be able to calmly slide through thousands of people yelling, what in the world am I going off on this subject for? Let me just tell you, it is a beautiful picture of what happens when creator is over creation and creation is submitting to creator and in the midst of what's going on around, it walks in perfect peace. The donkey had his creator on top of him. What an honor it was to be that donkey. 
And so, and so we rest in his sovereignty because he doesn't just move kings and kingdoms, but he moves baby donkeys. And we rest in his peace, knowing that when the creator is in control and when creation is submitted to the authority of the creator, he peacefully takes us through adversity. He peacefully takes us through chaos in the name of Jesus. What should have shook the donkey didn't. But just in case they overlooked the donkey, which they did, it was where he went once he entered the city that I think made the biggest impression. It was where he went that disappointed them. It was where he went that ultimately took these shouts of Hosanna into shouts of crucify him. Instead of turning right, you see, when you entered into the city of Jerusalem, you could turn right, and there you would see was the Roman garrison, where the headquarters of Rome, where the soldiers and the men of war would go and come. And if this was to be a revolt, you would definitely head to the garrison, where you would quickly and swiftly, with hundreds of thousands of people ready at your side, overthrow Rome. And so as the crowd is anticipating what is King David going to do, we know exactly what he's going to do. He is going to deliver us from Rome. Instead of turning, instead of turning right, Jesus makes a left. And you know what he did? He headed towards the temple. He headed towards the temple. Um, here's why this is important. He was on a mission, okay? And that mission was not to overthrow Rome. It was to clean his father's house. And you know, church, a lot of times we want God to judge the world, but he starts in his house first. We want God to harshly deal with sinners. That's because you, you don't know the gospel. You are a sinner who's worthy of being dealt with harshly as well. We want him to harshly deal with the sinners in the world, and he wants to clean his church. And so instead of making a right and headed towards the Roman garrison, he makes a left and heads towards his father's house because it's dirty. Are you with me? And if you don't believe me, let's look at verse 11. It says, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything... As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. What an anticlimactic story, right? That's it. Let's go. We're done. Let's pray. Praise God. Um, but let me give you a little bit of context. Like any good inspector conducting a credible inspection before he formulates a conclusion, he has to look at everything. And I love this. One commentary puts this moment like this. This was not the passing glance of a tourist, but the examination of the sovereign Lord. What he saw distressed him, but he would deal with that tomorrow. For now it was late, and he retired for the night to Bethany. On Sunday, today, he enters the city, and instead of going right to the garrison, he makes a left to the temple. He'll stop, he'll inspect every aspect of the temple, he'll retire for the night, 
on Monday, tomorrow, he'll come back to the temple and he'll begin to overthrow the chairs and kick people out. Because he says, my father's house is a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Do you get how offensive he's being? He's not overturning Rome. He's overturning the temple. And so now we see why. Five days later, they will shout, crucify him. This surely disappointed them. Jesus was not who they wanted him to be. Listen, I want you to see this. Um, Jesus knew their expectations would lead them astray. He knew he wasn't what they wanted him to be. And he knew that they would ultimately reject Jesus because he didn't fit in the box that they wanted him to fit in. And because they rejected him, he also knew that they would position themselves, are you ready, to experience the results of their rejection. This is why where the crowd saw triumph, Jesus saw tragedy. I want to conclude by finishing the section of scriptures in Luke that we started with in the beginning. Luke 19 says this, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And I didn't read these last two parts, but I will read them now. Jesus continues, for the days will come upon you. When your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surrounding you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. While everyone celebrates... Jesus weeps because they rejected their king. They also rejected their peace. And because they rejected their peace, they set themselves up for the divine wrath of God. Jesus weeps because he predicts and sees what's coming 40 years later after his death. Can I give you a history lesson this morning? What was coming 40 years later after his death? Jesus would die. Somewhere around 30 to 40 years would pass. And ultimately, there would be a revolt in Jerusalem. And for a moment, Jerusalem would temporarily expel the Romans out of their garrison. But this revolt would initiate a suffocating force that would come from Rome led by a general named Titus. Now, there's a historian by the name of Josephus that records all of this. Titus comes to the city that has kicked out the Romans, and now he comes with a legion, and he commands armies from Rome with a note from Caesar to win the city back. You know what Titus does? Titus decides to siege the city 
And what a siege was is when you began to surround the city and barricade the city with your forces. He dug trenches around it. You want to know why? So that nothing would go in and nothing would come out. And he was strategic. He did it during the time of Passover, which meant Jerusalem was busting at the seams with millions of people stuck and trapped inside of Jerusalem. And so Titus, the Roman general, gives orders for a siege, and Israel refuses to give in. And scripture tells us that as the siege continued, water became scarce and food became scarce until finally there was no more water, no more food left. There was a couple of things happening in Jerusalem. You see, what was going on in Jerusalem during the siege, during this siege was warring factions were actually fighting each other in Jerusalem. Zealots, different groups of zealots who hated each other politically were warring with one another. They were also creating bands of robbers and bandits that would go from home to home, raiding homes, taking any food, torturing and beating the children to find food. Crime was on a high, high rate. Inside of Jerusalem was a living hell. Bodies began to pile up. Disease began to circulate as Rome and Titus began to choke Israel off. And you know what happened? Josephus records this, that when you have no food, you begin to eat your shoe. You begin to gnaw on your sandals. You begin to gnaw on grass. You even begin to look into your feces for some kind of nourishment. And the Josephus tells a story of a woman in Jerusalem nursing her baby. And she roasts her baby alive. And she eats half now and she saves half later. Not only were they gnawing on their shoe, not only were they looking for food everywhere they get, but, but they began to go mad. And here's what's even crazier. Titus estimates that 500 people a day tried to escape. And you want to know what the Romans did? They crucified every escapee. It's reported that 10 miles worth of trees were cut down and Jerusalem was bare all around it and all you could see was crosses of crucified escapees. So leaving was just as bad as staying. The final recording number was this 97,000 people were taken prisoner during this time. And 1,100,000 died during the siege. That's not a fake number. Ultimately, Titus would level the city and he would destroy the temple. And listen to the words of the Roman general Titus. He says this. We have certainly had God for our assistant in this war. And it was, not, it, was, it was not other than God who ejected the Jews out of these fortifications. For what could the hands of men or any machines do towards overthrowing these towers? What do I mean by that? When they finally breached the city and they finally collapsed the walls and they finally began to take over Jerusalem, gen the general looked around and said, wow, how mighty of towers and fortress this city was. Even Rome in all of its power and all of its war machines would have never been able to breach through. There must have been a divine power that wanted the Jews to be ejected out of their city. 
not your typical Palm Sunday message. But I'm going to use this moment, and we're going to finish, to illustrate the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus and Christ, ladies and gentlemen. The road to peace from the wrath of God is in Jesus Christ. The road to peace from the wrath of God is in Christ alone. Man may try, but by no other means can we secure peace but through Christ. Jesus has secured our peace and he has taken upon himself the full wrath of God upon the cross. Now, it's easy to welcome Jesus into my life as the answer to all my troubles, to right all my wrongs. But I want you to know, Jesus hasn't just come to deliver you from your troubles. He's first come to deliver you from your sin. Why is that so important? Because it's your sin that deserves divine wrath. And so if he just becomes someone who delivers you from your troubles, then you miss out on the peace that he's come to give you. He's come to deliver you from your sin. Because without deliverance from your sin, we deserve divine wrath. Judgment. Peace with God and escape from divine judgment only comes by way of Jesus Christ. Not on our own terms, but on his. And so I, I plead with you this Easter week in the way that Jesus wept. Please, while there's still time, don't miss your hour of visitation. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Please, while there's still time, don't reject the things that are for your peace. And don't chase after the things that are wanting to destroy you. Please, while there's time, while Jesus is here, please don't receive him on your own terms, but receive him as Lord over all. And this is not a call to perfection, y'all. No one is perfect but Jesus. But this is a call to repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Every day of my life, repent and believe the gospel. I am a sinner. Believe the gospel. I deserve judgment. Believe the gospel. I deserve wrath, but I believe the gospel. Don't miss the hour of your visitation. It's the reason why Inspired Church exists. We don't want the Bay Area to miss their hour expectation. And so we will be a church that declares the love of God and the truth of God. Please don't let Easter week go by without you repenting and believing the beautiful gospel because in Christ we have peace with God. We have peace with God. And can I say this? More than anything right now, you need peace from God. I just feel that in my heart right now. The greatest thing you need in this moment is not more money. Some of you are struggling financially right now and you're probably praying that the Lord would, and I get that. But more than you need anything else right now, tangible, more than you need deliverance from anything that's going on in your job, your workplace, here's what you need. You need to be at peace with God. You need to know that at the core of your heart, all is well with your soul. All is well with your soul.
And so we have this confidence in Christ that those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there's no more condemnation. And all is well with our soul. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus. 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 Hallelujah. God, I I just want to be right with you. God, I want to have peace with you. And I recognize that my sin has made me an enemy. I've declared war on your word in my life. I've rejected your statutes, your statutes and your standards, your law. When I look into the mirror, I have failed. I deserve wrath. I deserve punishment. I don't live up to the standard of holiness. But you've made a way that if I would be hidden in Christ, that if I put my trust and my faith and my hope and my confidence, if I would place my ultimate joy, my ultimate purpose, my ultimate meaning and satisfaction in Jesus, that I would find peace with you and I'd be delivered from the wrath that I deserve. Jesus, as we enter into Holy Week, we recognize that on Friday, you will take my place and you will drink the full wrath of God on the cross. You will be tortured, crucified. Your Father will even turn his back. But because you died, I can live. So I just pray for anyone in here today that just doesn't feel deep in their heart at peace with you, God. I pray that they would repent for falling below your standards. And then I pray that they would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may this be a church that always celebrates the gospel, but in celebrating the gospel, may we never distort the gospel because it's the thing that saves mankind so Lord we honor you today may this Easter week be different may this entire week this Easter week be different for us Holy Spirit speak to us as we come back on Friday to reflect on the cross Lord we love you we honor you we thank you we worship you because your gospel is so good you have made a way where there is no way And that way is your son, Jesus Christ. Be with us today as we go with our families. And again, as we reflect on the Holy Week this week, I pray that it would be different this week. We love you. We honor you. We glorify you. And we lift your name up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen and amen. Look, we love you guys. We'll see you back this Friday. We'll celebrate Easter on Sunday. Have an amazing week. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspire Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.